Welcome to Healing After Birth, a mindful podcast for mothers. This is a podcast for moms who want to explore matters of the heart and find meaning in motherhood. Are you struggling with motherhood? Are you having a hard time during the postpartum period? Did you have a difficult, challenging, or traumatic birth experience? Do you want to learn more about postpartum mental health? Join me, your host, Jennifer, author and creator of the Healing After Birth program, as I explore these topics and more during candid conversations with professionals and everyday moms like you. Okay, so welcome everybody to the Healing After Birth podcast. This is your host, Jennifer Sommerfeld. And today I'm really excited to introduce you all to Emily Kumler Kaplan, and she is a mother of two children, an award-winning investigative journalist, and as an ABC News staffer, newspaper reporter, columnist, and magazine writer, she has gone inside the minds of murderers, world leaders, celebrities, business innovators, and everyone in between. Emily's fascination with how our personal narratives play a major role in our experiences makes her a captivating writer and speaker. She currently hosts the Empowered Health podcast. She contributes to the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Boston Magazine, Good Morning America, the New York Daily News, Cosmopolitan Magazine, The Daily Beast, and other media outlets. She also writes a health column for the Boston Magazine. So you can take a look at Emily's current projects in today's show notes, as well as all of her social media handles. So welcome, Emily. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. The bio makes me feel exhausted, but <laughs> like... Oh, yes. wow. When you read it out like that, it feels like a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's always one of those things to cut it down. <laughs> I know. know. Right. But no, I'm thrilled to be here. I feel like it's such an important topic. And yeah. uh, thank you for sharing the space with me. Wonderful. Well, I know you're doing some really big work in the world. And so I feel really honored that you um, reached out and that you were open to having this conversation with myself and our listeners at Healing After Birth. So one of the things that I read about you that we didn't include in the bio, but I really was captivated by it, which is that you grew up in a household with two feminists and you named them your mother and your father. <laughs> and, and I love that you included that because while today that word sometimes doesn't get a lot of good traction, it can be a controversial word, but I'm curious how um, growing up in that environment shaped who you are today. Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting, it's interesting because my dad, who's, you know, I would say a, definitely a feminist, but he would never identify himself that way. Do you know what I mean? So, it, and I think especially in today's sort of like polarized political environment, it's like, it's such an interesting thing. I grew up thinking a feminist was just somebody who believed that women deserved the same as men, mm. right? So like not any kind of you know, angry, armed, you know, <laughs> militant style. I like, I think, you know, my ultimate example of a feminist would be somebody like Madonna, right? Who like was very sexual and attractive, is, right? And attractive, but really showed that women could be powerful. And I think my parents both 
Um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that we were raised gender neutral. I don't think that that was even like something that they thought about, but we had expectations put upon us and certainly a lot of criticism, which I think we could, you know, talk for hours about, um, that was more about performance. Like it it was about judging you on your output. And that I think is very for me, very basic to the ideas or the ideals of feminism, right? It's that like, wait, judge me for my work, judge me for my contribution, not for, you know, my body parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, being a woman for me is about being feminine. And I think being feminine is like a wonderful, amazing thing to be. And we should be proud of that. And that's not, you know, so I like, I sometimes have a rant about um, you know, even like suits, right? Like women wear suits that were designed for men and then this slightly modified for women. And like people give Coco Chanel a lot of credit for coming up with the idea that like women could wear pants and like that this is, you know, would be fashionable. But I think actually in context, it was probably like, does, you know, like trying to equalize something. Hmm. And that's sort of how I see it. So I think as a kid, my parents, um, instilled in me the idea that like you really you can do whatever and it's not about being a boy or a girl I think when I reached adolescence they had a realization and I'm I'm sure my mom would say like this is you know you're exaggerating or we didn't really think about it that articulately (laughs) that I had actually kind of taken that on in a way that I think still scares them like I don't I don't think that they like my mom will often sort of say that I have like a Wonder Woman complex and she's like, we just don't know how you're doing all of these things. Right. And I'm, that can be upsetting in a way, right? Because I'm like, well, you're the one that told me I could do all these things. What do you mean you don't know how I'm doing them? Mm -hmm. But I think the application, like telling your child like, oh, you can, you know, of course you can be, I wanted to be a test pilot when I was a kid. I had seen the right stuff, that movie, and I became really interested in being a test pilot. (laughs) And my dad flew and so he knew a lot about aviation and he was an engineer. And so he would, you know, it was sort of a way for us to communicate about things. That is such a male dominated, I mean, like, right, that's all guys basically, right? And like, I loved Top Gun because (laughs) Ellie McGillis is there bossing the boys around, right? Like that, I definitely saw myself in that role. And I think my parents encouraged that in me Hmm. um, without realizing, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a predestined, like, let's do an experiment and see if we like, just tell her that she can be just like the boys, that she'll grow up and be like the boys. Right. Um, But that's how it kind of turned out in, in some ways, I think. And I think my ability to take risks is directly related to that sort of formative years in the house, learning how to fix things and do things and Hmm. not being scared to fail because I was failing all the time, you know what I mean? So you sort of are like, all right, I know what this is about. I can move on from here. Right. Um, It's interesting. You know, I, I have to say that I came into what I would call the women's rights movement or became a women's rights activist, which today we probably wouldn't even use the word women's rights. We would look at it more around gender rights. Um, But I came into it through the birth of my first child, so 20 years ago. And that's when, and and I think this is gonna tie in nicely to what you're working on today, because prior to that, very similar to your story, I was, you know, very motivated to be able to do and be whatever I wanted to do or be because I was comparing myself to what I saw the man's world, um, 
kind of being displayed as. And I wanted to be equal to that in, in so much as I even, well, maybe this isn't appropriate, but I even left the Catholic faith because I couldn't be a priest as a young, as a young person. I, right, and that at the heart of it is like recognizing some injustice, right? Totally. I totally saw the injustice in it and vocalized it even. Like it didn't make any logical sense to me. Why would I be any lesser than the person next to me, regardless of gender identity, regardless of race identity, that kind of stuff? Um, so that was, I was, I was motivated in those ways and also had a super mom um, who, you know, worked full time, made a decent living, took care of me, was widowed very young, and then got remarried. And, you know, I had two working class parents. So for me, similar to what you're saying, that idea of being a feminist was I have, I have the equal opportunity or I want to have the equal opportunity to earn as much and um, be out there in the more career-driven ways as you know, the, the men in my life or the men that it was being portrayed on, on movies and TV. So I was motivated in those ways. But then when I gave birth, everything changed. And that's when I realized that birth was actually a woman's rights issue. Hmm. And, that's really interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if that happened for you or if something similar happened for you. Um, you know, I think for me, just as a journalist, I've always been really interested in giving voice to people who don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And I covered technology for a while. And I often joke that like it was, you know, in the early 2000s. And so there was a lot of stuff that I was in Washington, D.C. covering Congress, who was making all of these decisions about tech stuff that they didn't really understand, right? Like nobody really understood like what was the, what was, what was the internet going to do? Um, and they were trying to regulate it. And like that sounds really off base, but for me, <laughs> there was something very similar to that, that there was to kind of doing this thing, which is pretty organic, right? It's like the most common experience that women share besides birth and death of them their, themselves, right? And yet, being in this situation where it felt so medically, like the medical intervention was right. like the technology, right? Yes. And the, the idea of like, I've got an instinct about this. And like that sort of was like, you know, Congress, when I was covering Congress, like wanted to guide based on like sort of like moral values, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they, no, you cannot come into my computer and update stuff without my permission. Like, what are you talking about? That's my private property. Mm. And, you know, in some ways that to me, like sort of kicked, kickstarted something that was really interesting because I also had a really hard time. I mean, my pregnancy was very normal with my son who was my, is my eldest. He's eight. Um, but my mom had had four kids, natural childbirth. And she had always talked about it as sort of like this magical experience where you get in touch with your instincts for the, like, you know, truly your animal instincts come out in birth mm -hmm. in a way that in our modern life, we just don't experience in any other environment. Right. And so I was like, I want to do that. That sounds pretty cool. Um, but I didn't really prepare properly. I mean, I think I look back on it now and it's like, you know, I took like a weekend natural childbirth class. <laughs> like, I kind of thought I could, I'm smart enough, like I'll figure it out. And um, now that I've covered, you know, C-sections and maternal mortality and these, you know, sort of big issues that we're facing today, I mean, it's more dangerous to give birth today than it was for my mom. Right. Um, one of the things that I've sort of come to terms with is somebody had, and I, I love this analogy that like you would never show up for a marathon if you hadn't trained, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And that showing up 
like on your delivery day and just sort of expecting everything's going to go according to plan is not preparing the way you would for any other big milestone in your life. And I think I was a little naive about that. I think that, um, and why, why do you think you were? Because I think it seems like such a normal thing, Mm -hmm. and yet we have this undercurrent of fear around it. And I think it doesn't, I don't, I mean, I think in the last, I don't even know, like five years, like very recently, have we really given voice to the complexity of it? Hmm. And that, you know, it, it's a paradox in that it's the most common experience and yet it's the most individual experience, right? It's a right. moment of identity formation, really, right? Yeah. You go from being an individual to being, having somebody dependent on you. You can't think of a bigger sort of personality, character, responsibility. I mean, all of these things that we think about in terms of development, mm-hmm. it all comes through in that moment. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, and like, I think for me, I'm not somebody who's really great with ambiguity. So pregnancy was hard because I kept kind of being like, I just want to know what it's going to be like. What's it going to be like to be a mom? Like, am I going to be good at this? Is life going to be different? Is it going to be the same? Is it going to be like when you get your period and you're like, I've been waiting for this moment, but I still feel kind of the same, right? Or like the first time you have sex, same thing, right? You're like, am I going to be different now that I'm not a virgin? Mm. And you're still you, right? But now you've got this other life experience that you're sort of trying mm. to assign value to, right? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, And I think too, and I know we're not going to spend the entire time talking about this, although I could, I love these conversations. (laughs) Um, But I think to what you said, sorry to interrupt about comparing this to the, the, the research you had been doing on the technology industry and you used the word property. And I find that to be a, a perfect word that can coincide with many women's experiences when they're giving birth where their body becomes the property of the institution and that becomes problematic and that is what i started to learn 20 years ago on my own as a young 23 year old for some reason i woke up to this and made some decisions to not have that happen for me but that wasn't the common that was not the common norm or the norm back then right well, I, don't, I still think it's not. I mean, I, I still no. think this idea that, um, you know, people want to go in and be knocked out for the birth of their baby, right? For this massive moment mm-hmm. um, is troubling in that, like, sure, I don't want to be in pain, right? Like, I totally get that. But the mm-hmm. idea of, like, not wanting to be an active participant in something that is very actively changing your life Right. Um, I think is symptomatic of something bigger. And I think, you know, when we look at the C-section rates, right, so like one in every three women delivers her baby in the United States via C-section. It's something that I became really interested in after I met Dr. Neil Shaw, who's at Ariadne in Boston. He's a OBGYN, but he's really been like sort of on the forefront of uncovering the C-section crisis. And what he had said to me was that it's one of these things really hard to study like from a scientific perspective, because when you deliver a baby via C-section and it comes out and it's blue, everybody in the operating room is like, thank God, right? We did the right thing. And when you pull the baby out and it's pink and, you know, full of life, you're like, thank God, nothing went wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to look back. And we have done a really fabulous job of blaming women, right? You're too old, you're too fat, it's your fault. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a really good job of blaming doctors. Oh, they want to go it's the weekend. They want to get out of the hospital. They can do more babies. They can make more money, all of which statistically end up not being true hmm. uh, or not being accurate. Hmm. And so you have to kind of look at the problem from this like multivariable perspective of like, well, what is happening? Because on an individual level, we can say this baby needed to come out via C-section, but on a, you know, sort of broader, more epidemiological look at it across the country, right? We can say, whoa, way too many babies are being born this way. Hmm. And Dr. Shaw has done a really, I mean, he's spent, I don't know, probably close to a decade now really trying to break this apart. And what's interesting is that having, you know, sort of been privy to his work a couple years ago, which I first reported on in Cosmopolitan magazine, um, and then ended up doing a story for the New York Times on the maternal mortality crisis, linking it to C- the C-section rates. Um, you realize that like this, and I think he would say, this is really about dignity in some ways. And this is about, I mean, like he had the experience of delivering babies in three different Boston hospitals that are all within miles of each other, basically the same patient population, and he's the same doctor. So he could cross out a lot of variables. Hmm. That might be different if you were trying to study, you know, a cohort of people. And he realized that his C-section rates in one of those three hospitals was much higher than the others. And he was like, and I'm also more tired at the end of my shifts there. So what is happening in that hospital? And then he did a little bit of digging and he's the one who turned me on to the fact that um, a hospital's rate of C-section varies from 7% to 70%. Mm-hmm. just based on what hospital, like what doors you walk through, right? Like that's crazy variation. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like a buyer beware kind of environment for giving birth. Right. And no one's taught. I mean, no one, I mean, I feel like recently we've been talking about it more, but like when I was, I almost had the inverse response, which was that I was scared about medical intervention, but I hadn't done anything to really arm myself, which is like pretty counter to how I usually approach problems. Um, And then I ended up having a really hard time because I didn't want an IV because I was like convinced they were going to like slip me Pitocin or something. Right. And like, which is really, that's not going to happen. But I did myself a great disservice because I became incredibly dehydrated. And I think it was like after 36 hours, they were like, we really want to, you know, break your water because you're basically like my contractions were as though I was like about to deliver, but I was not dilating. And I just fell apart. And I can remember looking at the doctor and being like, I don't want to disappoint anybody. And he was like, who, what are we talking about here? Hmm. And in some ways, like, I think I was talking about this idea of like, my mom had had this experience that I wanted to have. Right. And that was I going to let her down if I didn't do it her way? Or like, was I letting myself down by not doing it that way? And it was like just the pressure. I mean, it was like unbelievable. And I remember my husband looking at me sort of like, who are you? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you've got to make this decision for yourself because of how you feel, not because of some you know, idea of what this was going to be like that you're now realizing it is not like that. Right. And I think, you know, all of those layers for me Mm -hmm. are what make the experience itself so intensely personal, but also so important. And so, you know, we have, again, it's like, I'll just keep repeating this. It's like this idea of empowerment through birth. I really think goes back to like, even some like religious dogma, right? Like this idea that, 
Eve is the, the pain of childbirth is her punishment. Hmm. That's a modern construct. My older sister is an art history professor and her mm -hmm. specialty is medieval art. And I remember having a conversation with her and being like, you know, was that like part of it? And she was like, no, she was like, first of all, in the medieval times, Adam and Eve were equally punished. Um, so that somehow has morphed right into like a more modern day Catholicism kind of structure. And that sets us up, right? Where it's like, this is something we should be ashamed of, hmm. right? This is something that we should be scared of. Mm -hmm. This is some sort of punishment that we deserve, right? And I'm not Catholic, right? but that, there is a part of that that I think is just translated into Western culture. Whereas like, wait a second, if we just take a beat and we're like, wait, what did I do? I made a human. I grew a human right. without thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. And the human has to come out at some point, and this is how it happens. And just the way, you know, your body has been changing over time, like your life is about to change in, in an amazing way. And this is something that's really special because men can't do this, right? Yes. Like we could tell that story in a way that made women feel super powerful and in control. Right. We don't and do that. We do the opposite, right? Of course. It becomes the narrative that continues to keep the the women in a disempowered position you know if we're empowered in our birthing experiences because we're realizing how incredible this body is for what it can do and that somehow we can enter these transformative realms and these experiences that literally obliterate you and and these are the things that often aren't told in childbirth classes and i mean i've been teaching classes for years and have studied this intensely and have my own point of view and obviously some biases, but you know, birth turns you inside out. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly hard. And when we are entering into the altered state of labor, which we cannot give birth if we're not in an altered state of consciousness, because it's impossible to actually have form move through our body and out of our bodies. When you look at our bodies and you're going, huh, how, how am I going to get that through me without actually splitting in half and dying in the process? That seems <laughs> impossible. You know, and then we show them all these charts and we're like, look how amazing your hips are. Look how amazing your vaginal canal is. Look at all these beautiful like hormones that are going on. And you're just going to open wide up. <laughs> right? right. Like who, who would volunteer for that? None of us. <laughs> it's insanity. <laughs> so I think on some really deep cellular level, there is, I mean, A, I believe there is instinctive knowledge, absolutely, that's wired into our DNA. But there is also this terror that exists in us for so many reasons. And that's where the individuality comes in. Mm -hmm. There's so many reasons why the idea of being completely obliterated. And I say that because our mind has to move offline when we give birth. We cannot be in our thinking rational mind when we're giving birth, because if we are, we're not in the altered state of consciousness that actually allows that whole process to unfold instinctively. And so in those places, 
we're just not trained to do that. We're not given safe environments to be like, hey, it's okay for you to be wild. It's okay for you to like totally lose contact with your personality and your ego. By the way, you're going to have an ego death. Have you prepared for an ego death? Do you know what that is? Yeah, you no, know? absolutely. I would love to have taken your class. Right? So it's yeah. like, <laughs> and then I'll say to the fathers or those who are the partners of the birthing person, I'll say, look, your partner is going through a transformative experience and they are going to be blown wide open. Everything in their whole sense of self is being restructured, reoriented, and they need to engage that with as much presence as possible. And so your role is to create the safest space held with presence, held with love, held with like, I believe in you, I'm here for you, but you can't take it away from them you can't interrupt it. And so the whole technocratic system is A, not comfortable with seeing the wild because it's too powerful. It's too unpredictable. It's too chaotic. And so we need to control it. We need to manage it. And we need to be able to study it. And really, this isn't meant to be studied necessarily because it is so incredibly altered and instinctive. And I'll say it again, wild. We don't want to be creatures. Yeah, I think, no. And I also, you know, I just, I think, um, you know, I can't remember who it was, but I feel like it was like Henry VIII or somebody was like the first person to uh, like sort of instruct that his wife should be lying down for the delivery so he could see the baby first. Right. That story's out there. Um, I mean, I have not fact-checked that, but like that idea, I feel like is interesting right? Because it's like, we're being positioned to do something that is wild and is radical (laughs) in the sense of like what your body is capable of, right? In a way that you don't even, there's no way you can be aware of before you've gone through it. And yet at the same time, like being subjugated to the whims of somebody else's desires in that experience, like that would, you know, right that that doesn't seem right it doesn't it seems completely counter to how the experience should be um and i think you know one of the other things that i feel like dr shaw says a lot which i think is right is that we have created a medical environment or birthing environment that is the closest to an icu where you have one-to-one care and so like you're taking this very natural occurrence and you're putting women in an emergency environment. And guess what? You have a lot of emergencies there. Yeah, well, because you also have a bunch of adrenaline. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, I and like I just think like, you know, it's sort of like if you are looking for if you go to a specialist and say, like, I have these things, they're gonna look at it from their lens, right? Exactly. And so if you're in an environment with like lots of monitors and lots of this and lots of that and lots of people running around and alarms going off and whatever, like a yeah, you're going to have more intervention. Like that's not, that's not a huge leap. You know what I mean? And he's a very practical scientist, but I feel like that's a really just natural observation to make. Mm. Where are you doing this? And when I wrote the piece for the times on this, Mm. I compared the UK to the U S to sort of look, they had had very similar rates. Um, I think it was like in the forties and they basically, instead of saying like moms are old and fat and doctors are, you know, greedy and whatever, they were like, this is a public health crisis. Why are we, why are this many women dying in childbirth? Like we have modern medicine and we could, we can do better than this. Right. But they didn't go to the extreme of saying like this, the answer to this is medical. Mm-hmm. 
they went to the, how has this been done in the past and how can we improve upon that? And so now it's like, you know, most women deliver their babies with a midwife. And if they're high risk, then they might be delivering with a midwife near a hospital, right? So that they can get into the hospital if something does go wrong. And but the assumption in the UK. Yeah. yeah. But the assumption is not that something will go wrong, right? Whereas right. here we have created an environment where the assumption is something's going to go bad. Right. And so you, you got to be there. And, you know, on the flip side, I feel like after that story came out, I didn't really get to talk at all about race in that piece because um, I didn't have the space for it. And I wanted to really concentrate on the international comparison because, you know, we, our rates have basically gotten worse and they don't have a maternal mortality problem anymore. Um, so they fixed it. And so I felt like that was a really good example to use as a contrast, right? Of like, how do you approach a problem like this? But race is a huge part of this. And I think, you know, the idea that women are not listened to, and I mean, one of the big things we talk about on the Empowered Health podcast is this idea of like, you have to advocate for yourself. And so we're really covering sex differences in medicine. And so we're looking at all kinds of female, um, you know, illnesses, conditions, even life experiences and like how they compare to the male or like research that's coming out that sort of suggests that, you know, we get different diseases, we have different, we need different diagnoses and we need different treatments very often to solve the problem. And that's very new. Hmm. Um, but, you know, on the show, I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm just repeating myself, but it's like, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to do the work to know, you know, like, no, when you think you have endometriosis and you've done a ton of research about it and your doctor keeps telling you that it's a gastrointestinal issue, they don't know, right? You may know more. And like, that's sort of scary and weird because we have this authoritative yeah. approach to medicine. Birth is no different, right? So like right. every woman should research the C-section rates of the hospital that they're going to deliver in. And if they're in the 70th percent, try to get another hospital, like just move. You know what I mean? Like if that's the biggest factor in this, mm -hmm. you have some control if you know enough to look it up, right? Mm -hmm. But then the flip side of it is that, you know, you look at the, the, the rates of people listening to women in medicine are terrible, right? And taking concern seriously. But then you look at black women and it is, I mean, it is appalling. Like there's just absolutely no other word for it. And so when you look at these deaths that are happening, which the CDC says most of which are preventable, right? right. These women called for help. They reported having headaches. They reported, you know, having bleeding, like, and they were basically told like, yeah, it's normal. You just had a baby. And it's like, fuck that. It makes me so angry. It's like, no, listen to her. She's telling you something. At least have her come in and check her out, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it, it does feel a little bit like a factory, right? Where it's like, you're the widget and you've got to be like productive. And if you don't, then you're a nuisance. Right. What? That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that is like just such a colossal failure and of our Canada, healthcare environment. In Canada, we would see it statistically with our First Nations population who would be experiencing similar treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think it is, it, you know, for me, it's sort of like in the United States, the other metric that I often think a lot about, and I haven't written this because I can't verify all of the funding, but it's close to 80% of all research money that is spent on mother and baby are commingled. So in most research grants or whatever, government um, allotted amounts, mom and baby are 
together. And most of the money, about 80% or more, goes to baby. So like for me, I feel like the baby's medical experience is completely different, right? Totally different patient, totally different needs, totally mm. different, you know, experience, everything, risks. Um, and so why have we put these two together, right? Like right. they're not the same. They deserve their own separate budgets. And what are we prioritizing? And then you add to that the idea that every mom is always going to prioritize her baby over herself, right? Mm -hmm. Now you have confounded the problem. And so there's a lot to me in that about who we value, right? Like who do we listen to? Who do we really care about? And, you know, that might be extreme and I can definitely see people taking offense to that. Um, but it meaning meaning like valuing the mother over the baby is that what you mean? Well, valuing the baby over the mom, yeah, right. Okay. And the, and that that's like sort of in any like if I in a perfect environment you would have it be that the mom was systematically valued right over the baby because she is going to overcompensate for the baby's needs and right. advocate for the baby tremendously. So we have this double whammy whereby we are you know, prioritizing the baby's health and outcome over the mom's and the mom's doing the same thing instinctively. Well, and we're not even, so we're, we're making those prioritizations specifically to physical health. We're not even taking into consideration the social, emotional, and mental health. Absolutely. That's right. And that's my, like, that's my big shtick, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. If I could get into the, into the system, I want them to start considering the neurophysiology of mom and babe and unit and family unit, which is absolutely essential for healthy attachment, which then results in healthy family, community, relational health, right? Um, and reduce, reducing um, any kind of mental health issues or emotional health issues, yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, again, like going back to Dr. Shaw, I feel like having watched this evolution of his work, the idea that he's now sort of thinking about family dignity, I think is hitting right on what you just said, oh, because I think he's really focused. I mean, he started as just, you know, sort of being curious about C-sections and then really diving into it. Right. And then, you know, has now come around to this idea of like, well, if you have no maternity leave, right, or no parental leave, and mom has C-section and then has an hourly paid job that she has to go back to the next week. We really wonder why she's hemorrhaging and no one's oh. taking, you know, I mean, it's like, well, I, I mean, I can't even believe we're having this conversation in 2020. Like it right. my heart that in, in the U S this is still happening systemically and mm -hmm. worse for marginalized people. You know, it's, it's horrific. It because is. It's, have, and it's in, inexcusable, right? Because it's I, not oh, that we don't know what the answer is. Exactly. It's not or, a mystery. Or it's not that we haven't done enough research. Right. Right. <laughs> well, it's and you know, similar to I our mean, environmental crisis, you know, we, we have so much information and we're still frozen in the system. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I mean, I also think the stigma part of this is really hard for me to move past, right? This idea that like moms are supposed to bounce back as if it was nothing. And I took some baby classes that I really loved um, with an organization that was outside of Boston and they've subsequently closed, but they were just phenomenal in terms of like teaching you about like developmental stuff and like connecting you with other moms and being like just this phenomenal support group. I like think that they really they saved my life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I feel like it was like the only time I would leave the house. Right. And um, 
and we're talking about the first year probably yeah 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 um but I remember we were all sort of sitting around complaining about like not being able to fit into our skinny pre-baby pre-pregnancy jeans Mm-hmm. And it was like sort of this nice, you know, babies were like nine months old or whatever, commiserating about how like, you know, well, it took 10 months to put the weight on and it should take 10 months to take it off. And we're trying to be healthy about it, but this is ridiculous and like whatever. And our instructor was like, you know, I'm all for you guys complaining and getting it out, but I just want to make a point that in most cultures throughout most time periods, you guys would still be at home, like in bed being cared for by your village. Right. Yes. And like, most people like, you know, the grandmothers would be taking care of the babies and like people would still be bringing you meals and like no one would be expecting you to be as skinny as you were before you had a baby. Like, so just full stop on that one. Let's just think about where we are right now. You made a human, your body had to transform in order to do that. Built, built be, a new organ. Right. Be <laughs> a little kind to yourself. Right. Yes. And, you know, we're not good at that. And I think like you look at some of these like, you know, and I could go on and on about like the Instagram yeah. phenomenon of like people like the beach body company, like I don't want to get sued, but like their whole, you know, marketing campaign essentially is to like get new moms hmm. to lose weight really fast. And then like basically like tell every mom in their network, you can do it too if you just drink these shakes. Right. And then they recruit those women to become salespeople. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this sort of like pyramid scheme. That kind of stuff I find to be detestable. It's mm-hmm. just disgusting. Right. And it's like, this isn't helpful. This isn't saying like, you know, I, like I'm heavier than I've ever been, but I'm also really happy. Or like, this is really hard. And like, I wish I had a better body, but I'm trying to be patient with myself. Or like, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm really like, I I struggle with the experience of like having this little person who I love more than I've ever loved anybody. Well, at the same time, like feeling like I don't know who I am or like my body's not my own. Like, why aren't we having that conversation all the time? I mean, why can't we move away from the conversation about the ideal feminine body? I'm thinking, oh, there's so many things we could talk about, Emily. (laughs) I know we only have 10 minutes left and I do want to kind of, kind of circle back to the empower your empowered health podcast and, kind of what you're working on right now that's exciting you. Um, And as a side note, I just want to say I would enjoy a conversation with you about the Instagram, Facebook, social media platforms and what you've been noticing. Um, As a journalist, I think it's a fascinating medium that wasn't around when I was raising my kids. So I'm curious how it's changing motherhood, like, and and if it's actually contributing or if it's... um, causing more discord and disconnection. That's a whole other conversation. I know I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can kind of touch on both. So the podcast is really looking at women's health. Um, And I like to say like the whole woman. So we've done episodes on like the female brain. And then we've done episodes on, you know, maternal mortality and endometriosis and menopause and cancers and working mom struggles. So we're really trying to hone in on good research. Um, I have been profoundly disturbed by how the media has been cut back. So most newsrooms today are, you know, a fraction of what they were when I was a newspaper reporter. Mm -hmm. Um, And to give you an idea of what that's like is 
you know, I probably, as a daily newspaper reporter at a big newspaper, I covered a, like maybe one story a day, maybe four a week that were like daily reporting kind of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had like two or three weeks to work on a longer feature. And in a lot of newspapers today, the newsroom has been cut so dramatically that reporters are turning out four to six stories a day. Um, which means that they do not wow. have time to like go hang out at the police station, right? right. Or like cover the courts and research. There's no. And so like, I mean, you see reporters at the New York Times reporting off of press releases and I get the press releases. So I can see that they're, they've just pulled a quote from a, you know, a study that's come out. And that's why you see things like very often people will report on stuff and then you go and you look at the data and it's like, it was in a mouse model, right? <laughs> like, but it's been reported as though it was a human study. These are massive problems. I mean, like, this is not okay. And so what I, I, you know, and I, I also will say that the supply chain in journalism is often newspapers are on the ground doing the daily reporting, right? And then magazines will pick up on a daily newspaper story and sort of say, like, that's interesting. I wonder if there's more to that. And they'll assign somebody to work on it for a month or three months or a year or whatever. Um, when I was at 2020 in primetime, we had a morning meeting where we basically all read different newspapers from around the country. So we covered the entire country with 10 people reading different papers in the morning. Then we would have a morning meeting where we would all pitch stories from our papers that we thought would be good for the shows. And there would be a little bit of a debate about like, you know, why it was good or why it wasn't or why it would be a fit for one show or why it wasn't a fit. Um, And you'd kind of advocate for the pieces that you wanted. And then if the executive producer said it was a go, you'd hop on a plane and you'd try to line up people. Mm -hmm. If you don't have newspapers doing the on the ground original reporting, coming up with the ideas and covering some of the mundane, right? Because that becomes the bedrock for the bigger stories. You don't, the whole supply chain falls apart. Mm -hmm. And so we see this now, right? And I think there also has been this sort of like like fast news, fast news versus Which is often wrong. Yeah. Right. And when it comes to women's health, it's like it either doesn't get covered or it's, you know, a lot of the health reporting you see when you go and you look at it, they, there were no women, there were no female mice. Right. And so you're sort of like this reporter should be very clear that like, if you're a man, your risk for cardiovascular disease goes up if X, but not if you're a woman, because there were no women studied. Right. Right. That is that those sex differences turn out to be major when it comes to most serious medical interventions or conditions. And they're not reported that way. And I don't, I mean, I love the media, like as a, you know, journalist, a tried and true, well-trained reporter. I don't want to like bash anybody specifically, Mm -hmm. but I think the institution has failed because they have lost the credibility that is really requires a lot of time and thoughtfulness and, uh, you know, a, a development of experiences, right? So like if you talk to an old court reporter who covered courts, when a new court case comes up that sets a new precedent, they know it immediately because they notice that this is a change in how something is being ruled on. Mm-hmm. If you have like some young person go in and cover that, not to their fault, but they're not going to recognize that difference. And they're not going to have the time to go back and, you know, talk to a legal scholar just on background to get an education about it. That does us all a big disservice. And so for me, the point of the podcast was, um, you know, podcasts are weird, right? And like, nobody's really figured out what the formula is. And so you can kind of just talk. And so I thought, well, this is great because, you know, no one's going to give me 20,000 words, 
to write about all of these different reasons why sex differences matter when it comes to women's health. But in the podcast, we could do that, right? right? And we try to limit it to an hour. Jill, who's my like amazing editor, producer, everything is always like, we've got to keep it to an hour. And I'm like, but maybe people are interested and they want to keep listening. And it's like, no, they don't. Women are busy. They don't have time. Um, but you know, it's it like, so it's sort of an interesting medium for me to play around with. And I feel like the topics are really important. And there's so much stuff that I've come across that I've been like, whoa, what? Like, that's different too? I do want to make a plug for your recent one with Jennifer Block um, on the Dr. Gutter case. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re- I listened to that one because I'm a fan of Jennifer Block and I read her book, Pushed, a long time ago. Um, felt like I aligned, like we were allies. You know, it's like, oh, thank God somebody's doing this. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I really appreciated that one. So some of my listeners might really appreciate that one as well. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So I know we need to wrap up. And in closing, what has been your greatest takeaway so far as a woman who's passionate about changing the landscape of how we view women's health issues within the mainstream media? I don't think that doctors go to med school to do anything nefarious. Right. But I do think that the modern medical environment is such that research has become, I would say, like sort of contaminated. I think researchers are pressured to find significance in ways that in the past they were told to be critical of themselves. Right. So like the best scientists are the ones who are tearing apart their own research, not the ones who are plugging it. But we've created an environment whereby you have to find significance and you have to get a lot of citations and, you know, basically like mainstream media coverage of it in order to get more funding for your next project. That's the job of a publicist, not a scientist, right? So if we say like we're going to start with that, then everything downstream of that, and I hate to sound so um, negative, but I feel like the, the financial incentive, at least in the United States, has become so oppressive that like the average doctor visit is like seven minutes, like seven minutes. You're not like, and we know that patients leave doctor's appointments and they feel it was um, not worth the trip if they don't leave with a prescription. Hmm. So we've really created, um, I don't know, like a, a skewed environment where like the information isn't as solid as people may think it is, right? Which is why we have so many counter reports, like eggs are good, eggs are bad. Like We don't know anything about eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, when it comes to women in particular, I think it's really, really, I mean, I feel like the big, if I were to make like one really important point is that if you are going through any kind of medical crisis or even medical intervention, Um, You really want to know that the research or the decisions or the advice that your doctor is giving you has been tested in a doubly blind clinical trial of women. And the more they look like you, the better. Hmm. And what you'll find very often is that, and we see this with like statins and things that like are probably not great for women, um, that doctors will start backtracking because they're not, they don't necessarily know was it tested on women? And so, you know, I totally get that not everybody wants to go back and like read all the original research and, you know, dive into the numbers or like we've gotten to the point where like we did two episodes on mammograms and it was so outrageous to me that the mammograms are so bad 
I mean, they're so, they're not a good predictor of breast cancer. They miss a lot of breast cancer. And everybody's like, well, it's the best we've got. What? Like, hmm. this is unbelievable to me that we actually re-ran a lot of numbers to try to make sure that we weren't like wrong or missing something. Newspaper reporters, like people don't have time to do that, right? There's like a handful of people on Twitter who I feel like are really into that kind of research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say like what the, my goal with the podcast was to become a really a trusted source for women in terms of their health mm-hmm. so that I'm often trying to give educational points of like, what's the difference between a relative risk and an absolute risk, right? Mm-hmm. And research is very often reported as a relative risk because it sounds more significant, but is it really important? Probably not. What you want to know is what's my absolute risk of getting this thing. Mm. And if it's tiny, then don't stress about it, right? If you already have it and you're looking to compare interventions or something, then you might want to consider the relative risk. But most of the time, that is a statistical way of manipulating information to really kind of manipulate the audience. And I see that as a journalist as sort of fraudulent. And salacious, and I don't like it. And so we really try hard on the podcast to do good research um, and to dive into things. And then, like, I do my best to try to ask tough questions Mm. because I feel like I'm in a very privileged position where I get to actually talk to these researchers, right? So, like, I've interviewed the CEO of Dana Farber and the um, head of Jocelyn Diabetes and, like, really, you know, big medical establishments. And I feel like, you know what? Most people don't get that opportunity. So my job is to ask hard questions and kind of hold their feet to the fire a little bit, right? And, and, and make people realize things. I mean, when we interviewed um, the CEO of Dana-Farber, one of my big takeaways from that was that I had asked her, is there any statistical analysis that you all have that compares results, right? Like so treatment results for people who come to you with cancer versus other like top 10 cancer hospitals in the country. Meaning when people come to Dana-Farber, do they leave, you know, in a shorter period of time? Do they, or do you have a better cure rate, right? Like any of these kinds of things that you think like, this is your product, right? What you sell is cancer treatment. So how does it compare to the, the person next to you? And her response to me was, oh, when people, when we ask patients and family members to fill out surveys, they always give us the highest marks in terms of satisfaction. I was like, satisfaction? What do you mean? And she's like, well, she was like, you know, people always feel like they got really great care and that they were really supported. Even family members who have lost somebody report how supported they felt through the process and how grateful they are. And I literally was like, I want to throw up, right? Like, you're not the Four Seasons. This is about going someplace to get treatment. Right. And if you're not doing a good job at that, then your next bet is probably to do something like how satisfied are you with the way we talk to you? Mm -hmm. Um, That stuff drives me crazy, but I feel like, you know what? I'm in a privileged position where people, at least for the time being, are still willing to take my interviews. (laughs) And so I have to ask those questions. And I hope that when women listen, it kind of opens their eyes a little bit to some of the, some of the pressures, right? Or the influences that are happening behind the scenes. I mean, I really, I feel like the influence of pharma and the lack of oversight, I mean, we're going to do an episode coming up on um, social media influencers, sort of pushing vitamins or things, and how in some ways that kind of gets around the fairness and advertising laws and the FTC regulations. 
Um, especially if people are talking about anecdotal experiences, like, oh, I took this and I lost 10 pounds. Well, that is sort of hard to refute, right? But if a company were making those claims, it would have to be true and it would have to be provable. And so they're using individuals and like the power of the individual story, right? Or this like power of narrative to manipulate people. And so, you know, I mean, I feel like when I was a kid, if something wasn't approved by the FDA, my mom would be like, well, don't take it, you know? But now it's like nothing is, I mean, it's like like the vitamin world or GNC, like all these places are filled with things that haven't been tested. And you've got people on the internet telling you that they're great for all kinds of things. How do you navigate that? That's hard, right? And that's that's an upcoming podcast. Yes. Um, And, and so, you know, I mean, I sort of feel like my hope with the podcast is that I think people mostly come, I think we have some regular listeners, certainly, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of times people are are searching for, you know, an illness or a condition or a thing that they want to know more about and they come upon it, which is sort of interesting to me because that's not, you know, again, that's like so different than like TV or whatever. But I've also realized that like, these are all evergreen topics, right? So it's not like this is newsworthy in some way where like, oh, this week it's relevant, but you're not going to listen to it next week. Like we have a lot of our first podcasts that are, you know, regularly getting, yeah, which is really cool. I mean, I feel like from working in those other mediums where it's like the newspaper drops, and like you, you know, kind of get some feedback, but a month later, you're not going to hear from somebody about that story you wrote. Mm. That's not the case with this, which I think is pretty cool because hopefully the podcast becomes sort of like encyclopedic for women as a thing to go back to and look at, you know what I mean? So like as you're experiencing different life events or other women in your life that you're caring for, um, you can go to a trusted source and our, you know, Jill does an unbelievable job and our interns do an unbelievable job of putting the show notes together, which hmm. basically any study that's or research that's mentioned in the podcast is linked out to, which a lot of people would say like, don't do that. You want people to stay on your site. But right. my whole thing is like, no, I want people to get information. So, right. you know, if I'm arguing with somebody about a study, go look at it, see what you think. Um, and I think the more resources we can give women, the better, right? So it's like with birth, it's like, you know, this is a really exciting and, and should be scary in some, that sort of like identity forming way, Mm -hmm. your life will never be the same, but that's not bad. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, you don't have to be, um, overwhelmed with it. I think we overwhelm people and I don't want to do that either. I feel like Mm -hmm. I really want to try and celebrate women and, sort of how miraculous we all are. Well, I think it's incredible work that you're doing, Emily. I'm so grateful that you're using your power wisely and that you're Uh out there (laughs) in the trenches having these big conversations with, you know, industries and leaders and researchers and organizations that many of us just couldn't reach. So it's it's amazing. And I'm I'm so grateful that you came on today's podcast and shared everything that you did. I can oh, tell you. Thank you're, you so much for having me. Yeah. That oh, was wonderful. I was just going to say, I can tell that you're really passionate, <laughs> 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 which is awesome and makes right. great podcast hosts. So, well, uh, now I've become this angry feminist that I didn't grow up being. Uh, I realized the injustices in the world. And so now I really can get it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I can't help but think of the movie Bombshell that I just watched <laughs> as we're talking. Uh, I haven't seen it. 
Oh, I, I, I'm, I know. I have to see it. I'm like, I'm so excited yeah, to watch it. Yeah, I would love to know your thoughts on it, but that, but at another time. So um, I will close now. And uh, just so that our listeners know, they can find all of Emily's, um, her, her podcast and her links to all of her social media and um, anything that we chatted about in today's podcast uh, will be available for you. So I encourage you to check it out because this is big work and obviously um, she is a trusted source. So thank you, Emily. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation and I hope it was helpful. Mm -hmm.